people think like I meet so many buyers at open houses that are like, well, what if I lose my job? Or what if the economy crashes? Or, you know, I'm just going to keep renting. And to that, I say, okay, so I've lost my job. And <laughs> it crash. And it's okay. You're going to own again. You're going to build back up. The economy cycles, you know, comes and goes. And don't be afraid because what if you succeed and it was the best purchase you could have made and look at you now, you know, when there's a scarcity for rentals, you know what, where you're going to go home to, you know, where your kids are going to grow up. Welcome to the millennials and money podcast, the podcast dedicated to encourage millennials to continue to make wise decisions with their money. We find some of the best ways to learn is through stories. So each week, your host and wealth advisor, Payne Boyer, invites a millennial guest on the show to share their money story. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. And today I have a very special guest with me. I have Ms. Daria Gomeshi, real estate tycoon. Daria, I'm going <laughs> to give you a chance to introduce yourself in a bit. But first, I'd like to start by sharing on the ways that you and I know each other. So you and I met about, about two years ago, I think, maybe a little over two years ago at a uh, business owners networking group. Yeah. We were both new. I think I, I joined maybe one week before you joined. Yeah. And within three weeks of us both being members, you became the president and I became <laughs> the secretary treasurer. And ever since I've known you, you've been very supportive of my, of my business. You've been you've been someone to look up to. You're doing a great job growing your business. I, I love the way you serve your customers and put your clients first. So I think you'd be a perfect guest for the show. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I'm really excited about this. Thank you. It's my honor. So this is the podcast about inspiring millennials and sharing just other millennials' money stories. I think I've heard a bit of your story and I I can't wait to hear it straight from you. So first of all, tell, tell the audience who you are, what you do for a living and some of the things you, that inspire you. Sure. Uh, thank you, Peyton. Thank you for that fancy schmancy introduction. Now I feel uh, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm Daria Gomeshi. I am a realtor here in the Sacramento area. Uh, currently, I am with Keller Williams in El Dorado Hills. I've been a realtor now for seven years. Uh, prior to that, I was a loan officer. And I love what I do. I help families every day buy and sell real estate, primarily primarily residential. And, um, you know, I, I was a team lead for a team previously. Didn't want to do it for a little bit. Now I'm a team lead again. <laughs> Can't seem <laughs> to get out of that position. Um, but I do enjoy it. Um, and just finding that work balance, work-life balance, um, is what we're really focusing on right now. Cause work is crazy. <laughs> I bet I know your job is like mine and we were constantly meeting people and we constantly have to be out there. And right now it's difficult than normal to meet people with what's going on. We'll get into that later. You mentioned one thing about coming into the industry as a loan officer and now being a real estate agent. Talk to me about the transition. So I was, uh, I started out very young. I kind of 
I, I mean, I, did, I had no desire to be in real estate whatsoever. I got a job in high school answering phones for a title company. I had no idea what a title company does. Um, and I thought this will be cool until, you know, I finished college. Uh, wasn't the case. So uh, I later on got a job with Countrywide, if any of you are old enough to remember Countrywide. And then um, fast forward years and years and years later, uh, I met my now husband, who is a mortgage broker, who uh, kind of recruited me over to retail lending. And I helped families one-on-one -on -one instead of in uh, banking. I then helped families one-on-one -on, -one on obtaining homes and refinancing. And, um, and then just one day, I figured, you know, I've never had a good experience with a realtor. And... Uh, I just never understood why realtors only have one license, but they're kind of in charge of this entire huge life event. Um, so I thought, well, I've got title knowledge, I've got lending knowledge, and I by that time I purchased, you know, five five properties probably. I bought my first property when I was nineteen, um, and I thought. I think I can do their job too, because by then I had already had my real estate license. It was required in after 2009, we had to have our real estate license um, and then state lending and national lending. And I had that because I was working for a broker and I said, well, I'm going to try helping some friends of mine with real estate too. Um, I have all this knowledge. I should be able to do a decent job. And um, once I did one transaction, I just knew I've been doing the wrong thing all my life. And I, I, I haven't stopped since then. I mean, I made uh, the top producers list immediately in Sacramento County. And then um, I'm now a lifetime member of that list. And I just, I love, love, love what I do. And I think knowledge is key, experience is key. And that's what sets me apart. And um, yeah, I think no, I love it. That's how I fell into it. No, I love it. You said one thing that you said that I think is the way a lot of us millennials think is that you never met a real estate agent that you really enjoyed working with yeah. prior to the business. And that's as entrepreneurs and millennials, that's the way a lot of us think. Like we can't find it the way we want it. So let's go make it. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of like what you did. So I think that's just awesome. Um, well, the average realtor is uh, a female in her late 50s to early 60s. And I could see how for a millennial, you, I just remember like when I was 19, my, my realtor was probably a gentleman in his late 50s, early 60s. And he spoke to me and treated me like a child, which mind you, I was. <laughs> but um, I, I, I hated that experience, right? And I hated feeling like I don't understand the experience. And I just, I, I was always frustrated. And every time he came to buy a property, I was like, all right, get ready for like the worst month of your life <laughs> because it's just a bad experience. And, um, you know, for millennials, especially, and then you look at the young realtor and you're like, well, I don't want to work with them either because they don't know enough. So you get treated poorly 
by by the experienced realtor. And then you don't want to work with the young one because you feel like you're having to question things. Um, so yeah, <laughs> for millennials, yeah, it's tough. Kind of across the board in the whole financial industry as a whole, I'm the same. I'm right along with you. Yeah, in that. you're the same way, right? It's the I same thing for you. Same thing. Um, so you mentioned um, purchasing a home, getting your first home in, at age 19. What were some of the things you did to make sure you're in the right position to be able to do that? And I, <laughs> I definitely don't think I was in the right position to do it. It was actually a prop. It was an investment property. It wasn't even my primary residence. It was an investment property in the Arizona uh, Phoenix area, a town called Chandler, and a bunch of my parents' friends were buying condos out there. And it was my parents' friend who was telling my parents about it. And I said, "Well, you know, well, I can I, I can do that." Uh, how much did you spend and what's your monthly payment and what are you renting it out for? And my parents, my parents being immigrants and English being a second language and just always struggling. Right. Um, they were like, Oh no, we're not. Uh, nope. Nope. We're not doing it. We got our one mortgage. This is what we're doing. Um, but me being apparently the entrepreneurial spirit that I am, I said, Oh, oh no, I think we can do this. So we got a plane ticket. I called my parents as friends, realtor. Um, I wasn't old enough to rent a car, so I needed him to pick me up from the airport. <laughs> so that was interesting. But that's how I bought that first property. And, you know, it just made sense to me. I did the math. I was like, okay, my rent is this. And, you know, what's the work that's going to happen? And I'm like, why not? I, I qualify for the mortgage. The numbers make sense. Uh, and in six months, I, the way the market trends are going, I'm going to make how much? Okay, let's do this. So it made sense. It took a lot of, I mean, I definitely didn't go on vacations. I did definitely didn't buy the shoes. I certainly didn't eat out and all those things. Um, That's so important. It's things I talk to my clients about is like, yeah, what, what's value and what you, and it's just spending a line with your values. You had a, you yeah. saw a prize, you saw in gold that you wanted, you wanted to purchase the property. So sometimes you got to put other things on hold. And to be 19 and be able to do that, that's that's impressive. I think the thought process wasn't as mature back then. Back then it was like, okay, I'm going to do this for one year so that later I get to, you know, like fall out, <laughs> which was not <laughs> the case. But the thought process was exactly that. And that's how I positioned myself. And then once I actually realized a year and then a year and a half later, like what was happening, what our income was looking like at the moment and um, just everything in real estate uh, came the second property and so on and so forth. So, so you mentioned that your, your parents are, are immigrants to this country. Yeah. Were you born here or are you, are you an immigrant as well? No, I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was 11 years old and came from Moscow, Russia. And uh, yeah, definitely not, not a lick of English. So definitely an immigrant. And you know, uh, like my, my wife is from Mexico and I've seen her parents come over. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the mindset of you guys, when you come to, from another country, you see so much opportunity here. And I see so many business owners and I see so many people from different cultures and different countries 
come here and uh, persevere. And I think it's just super impressive. Like you said, not knowing any English, you just still able to take advantage of it. So I think that's impressive. Um, that kind of brings me to my next question. Uh, many times I, I find that someone's whole outlook on money and whether it's surplus or scarcity, a lot of times that initial outlook is molded as children and things they see in their household. So what was what were things like financially for you in your household growing up both in Moscow and then here? So in Moscow, we had a very modest life. Um, my mom was a nurse, which, you know, back then it was communist. So the income was minimal. And there was five of us in a what's in America considered probably like a one bedroom flat. Um, everybody slept, my grandma, my brother and I slept in the bedroom. My parents slept in the living room on a fold out couch. And, um, you know, my mom came to the United States on a one year au pair contract. Um, and the, the idea was she was going to earn this money and bring it home. Obviously she came here and she found a way to stay. And then we immigrated, but you know, it was always, rations and coupons. I mean, to get bread you, or milk, you had to stand in line. And um, there was always this mentality of, you know, you, you only got chocolate if it was your birthday or if it was a holiday. You wow. Things were, food was hidden. Um, you know, that was just our life. Like we weren't starving, but everything was very cherished. So then when we came to the United States, the five of us lived in an, uh, a studio apartment. So we went from at least like having some separation to no, it was just everybody in one studio until we were able to maybe for four or five months, something like that. First few months we lived in that studio and then we got a two bedroom uh, apartment in the same complex, but same concept, you know, everything was, we only had one car. Um, immigration documents are very expensive. So I was definitely the free lunch kid yeah. <laughs> growing up. So yeah. What? And I have, I have a story for you before I forget. Um, in this story, I bet you're going to ask me this, but this story had the biggest impact on like how I look at things financially when I was eight and we had already known when I was eight, cause my mom left initially when I was six. Um, and when I was eight, we had already like known that we were coming to the United States and there was on my way from music school, cause you had to go to music school or something when you're a kid in Russia, it's like a thing you have to do. I had stopped by this store in the window and I had seen a doll and the doll back then was 8,000 rubles <laughs> and which wasn't crazy expensive. Uh, just to give you in perspective, like an ice cream cone, like to get like a Baskin Robbins type of ice cream was like 500 rubles. And so this doll was 8,000. So not crazy expensive. Right. Um, and I had come home and I had asked and begged my dad for this doll. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to buy the doll, but like, I'll make you a deal for certain things, be nice to your brother, you know, take out the trash, like chores type of situation. I'll give you money. So I had this Folgers coffee can, which my mom had shipped over from the United States. And that's where I put the money. And it's 
I don't know how long it took me, but I would do things like not buy ice cream or ask like my grandma to, instead of buying me, you know, candy, can I get the money you were going to spend on candy? And they would make me count the money and they would make me like, you know, well, how long do you have until you can get that doll? And I was eight and I would choose to skip out on certain things for my goal, for that Folgers coffee mug thing, not mug, but container. So that was huge. I mean, that set the stage. I did that with everything. Um, everything later on I would like pick up pennies in the United States and because I would see something at the dollar store and I'd be like all right well like 10 dimes and I can get that so that was big for me no I think that's huge that's a great story and a great um way to motivate your kids and teach them how to save and the value of saving money to get what you want And, and value something more when you earn it like when you saved up for it and you took the steps you put off on x so you can get y and that's what yeah. you were learning at, at aj so that's impressive. and i was gonna ask you you kind of answered that question because it sounds like that's something you still do but how did your upbringing kind of sculpt your outlook now on money and that's it and i also gotta ask you about what was 08 09 and 07 like for you being in real estate I think that so that experience when I was eight a hundred percent the base for how I what how I fear and feel about finances and how I ration in my head or budget in my head um oh seven oh oh seven oh eight oh nine oh seven was a fantastic year 08, I was very optimistic. Mind you, I was very young. So we're talking like 22, 20, yeah, like 21, 22. And, you know, I had a beautiful home that was 850,000. Um, I had a great job. I had the two investment properties. I mean, just life was great. So I was continuing to be very optimistic, which was kind of the, senses across the board with all the lenders back then and everyone that was in the real estate industry, right? It's never going to crash, which was very wrong. And there's multiple movies that you can watch to kind of understand more of what happened. The Big Short being probably one that I like the most. It's not one that you fall asleep to. (laughs) So um, that was a good explanation. And, you know, in 08, when I realized that, oh, bleep, um, this is, this is not good. And my financial situation went from, you know, trying to pay bills to which bill am I going to skip paying to which mortgage am I going to skip paying to, you know, okay, I need my car and I need to eat and what's next. But the biggest thing it taught me was, you know, you don't be afraid. I mean, people think like I meet so many buyers at open houses that are like, well, what if I lose my job? Or what if the economy crashes? 
or, you know, I'm just going to keep renting. And to that, I say, okay, so I've lost my job and <laughs> it crash and it's okay. You're going to own again. You're going to build back up the economy cycles, you know, comes and goes and don't be afraid because what if you succeed and it was the best purchase you could have made and look at you now, you know, when there's a scarcity for rentals, you know what, where you're going to go home to, you know, where your kids are going to grow up. Um, you don't have to fear your landlord giving you a notice, raising your rent. Like that's a real fear for me, at least. Yeah. Um, so 07, 08, 09, um, definitely gave me at the time being, I didn't feel like it was an inspirational time. (laughs) Now I definitely do. And I can see, you know, I always think about what's important, my son's education, you know, his health and safety, and, you know, that he has a roof over his head and that his lifestyle doesn't change. So it doesn't matter like what your financial earnings are. I always base like our monthly living and monthly lifestyle on those principles, making uh, sure that things don't change for him. Just valuing. Let's make yeah. sure our spending is aligned with the values. I, I drive that home so much on this podcast, even with my clients, just making sure that what you tell me value, it's my job to make sure you're spending, your investing is aligned with that. I'm, or either you're not telling me the, your true values or something needs to change here. And when you keep that forefront on your mind about, okay, this is important with my son's education, my son being having a roof over his head, this is important. You're going to find a way to spend that's aligned with that. And you're going to be happy. Your son's going to be happy. And you're not going to stress over, over finances. Yeah, exactly. What are some things that you did during those tough times to, to readjust, you know, you went from having a, a huge mortgage. I don't know if you kept the house or not, but no. how would you pivot and make sure things uh, things stayed on track? The reason I ask that is because all that's going on with, uh, with the COVID-19 crisis and all that's going on in the world, and it's, it's hard to maintain a sense of certainty. And it's very easy to get a sense of uncertainty. So Throughout those times and throughout these times now, what are you doing and what did you do to make to keep your eye on the prize and make sure you you didn't jump ship? So the uh, number one is always, you know, if you are in the position to where you kept your job and there's uncertainty, um, start I don't know, start to see where what is certain like your mortgage not being if if you're in a mortgage that is set to adjust for instance in five years from now you know go ahead and refinance now or talk to your loan officer about the options to make sure that you you make that a locked uh non-adjustable type of mortgage so create that certainty where the roof over your head and you know what if you overspent and you bought your house with, you know, assuming you're going to have those yearly bonuses every year, and um, then go ahead and reassess. Reassess, don't be afraid to downsize, um, and position yourself in a more secure 
option. I'm seeing more and more buyers in the past three months come to me and tell me, you know, assume only one of us is working. Doesn't matter that two of us are working, assume one. Or um, someone who is, you know, the, the, if their debt to income ratio is okay at 50%, they're choosing cautiously to spend only up to a quarter of their income on their housing expense, right? But they're locking it in, they're buying, and they're creating certainty because, you know, landlords later on when there's a shortage of rentals like there have been and even more there will be rather than not paying your mortgage you know and foreclosing on your home and having to look for a rental the time is to reassess that maybe selling your home is the better option and then downsizing so just making the assessment of did we overspend where can we create security um i think that that was important you know at one point back then for me i just realized that my parents' mortgage was way more secure. It was a fixed rate. It wasn't going anywhere. And I approached them and said, you know, can I move in with you? And I did. And I just moved in with them. And I helped so, them with their mortgage. What I hear uh, through your answer is when things aren't certain, it's, it makes sense to focus on things you can't control. Things yeah. that you have control over and focus on those and see... And just find security in fact, hey, at least I have control over something here. At least I know what my mortgage is going to be. At least I yeah. can take the option of moving in with my parents. And that way, my, my expenses stay more normal and they're not going up and down. So we're going to pause here and hear a word from our sponsors and we're going to return back. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's your host and wealth advisor with Homes Financial, Peyton Boyer. You know, many times what I do for my client is help them secure the peace of mind of knowing they have enough. You know, as millennials, it's easy to feel like we don't have enough. Enough to secure the financial future we're hoping for and also enjoy our lives now. But that's why one thing I do with all of my clients is what I like to call a money purpose plan. And make sure that their current spending is aligned with what's most important to them. That way they're able to enjoy their life now while they track towards their financial goals. If you're interested in securing your money purpose plan, please reach out to me. You can contact me at my phone, 916-271-1974, or email me at Payton, that's P-A-Y-T-O-N at Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S-F-I-N, F-I-N dot com. I look forward to hearing from you. Let's get back to the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Millennials and Money podcast. I'm your host, Peyton Boyer, and I have Ms. Daria Gomez with as my guest. So we, we are really enjoying our conversation, Daria. Uh, one thing you mentioned was uh, your son, and that was your main focus to keep things kind of stable. And I also know you are, you're newly married. You, you've, you've gotten married since I've known you. So talk to me a bit what that was like, and I can share my own experiences as well as blending, blending a family together. What was that like for you, Daria, and for your son and for your husband? So we are, because, um, you know, 2009, <laughs> out of everything that happened financially, somehow I decided to have a child too. Um, <laughs> so I have an, an 11-year-old son who's been the biggest driving factor uh, of every financial decision I've ever made. And you're right. Uh, although I met my husband 
uh, 10 years ago, we had just recently uh, made it official and we are a blended family. And, you know, as far as like, what do you want to know? Like financially? Yeah. What was it like merging two financial backgrounds together? I know your, 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 your husband, is he a first generation American as well? So he's an immigrant as well. He came, uh, he came here when he was 11, uh, just like me. Um, okay. We have a, we have a 10 year gap between us. So 10 years prior to me, he came. Um, so as far as financing, you know, we do not, we do not share our finances. That's just how we choose to operate. We're both business owners. We both, um, we both choose to keep our primary finances separately. We keep some joint for our household, but uh, for the majority, we keep our finances separately. And I find that that's best. I know that I need, I mean, I helped in, in every, there's no wrong way to do it. Like if you join your finances, good for you. If you do what we do, good for you too. I just, I've worked enough real estate transactions with divorces where the financial aspect of it is just so ugly. Um, and you know, they, it, it's down to like, well, he went out to lunch and spent $40 or she bought a pair of shoes, you know, and how dare she spend that much on her hair or something. So just very petty things and life is hard enough, you know? Um, so as far as finances, take care of your household first. That's how I, I found because I work with a lot of clients. I, you've got to figure out what works best for everybody because exactly. I do encourage a lot of people doing it as one. But then when you have two business owner, owners who are business, most business owners are type A personalities and they're, they like being in charge. In that case, sometimes it makes better to do it separately. So exactly. really, from my experience, it comes down to what works best for who. Yeah, and that's how we are. We're both very type A, very, you know, I, I would never do something like buy a car, for instance, without my husband or, I don't know. I, I, I typically consult with him, but we definitely manage our finances for the most part separately he advises me most i would put it that he advises me okay got it so um this is this is a podcast intended to give millennials insight and give and help them get off start to the right foot and share wisdom with them so i would consider successful i know entrepreneur we never consider ourselves for success but one thing i do know is you're more successful now than you were uh, 10 years ago so oh, let's pretend we had time let's pretend we had a time machine and you could go back and talk to yourself 10 years ago what are some things you tell yourself back then to do today i would certainly give myself kind of the advice that i just gave in terms of certainty and budgeting and that is, you know, make sure to establish a safety net 
establish what lifestyle you want, create the safety net for that lifestyle first, right? Make sure you can handle what, what you've got right now and be slow to make, to add to the plate. Um, don't be in a hurry to upgrade the house, upgrade the car, upgrade the wardrobe. Uh, hurry to establish those core pieces in your life. You know, do that sooner than later. Just don't hurry to upgrade them. Um, and don't worry about, you know, a house is a house. It doesn't matter which zip code it's in. Um, owning it is, is the biggest step. Um, renting in the other zip code that you wish you would have been living in isn't as important right now. So that was my advice. I think that's awesome advice. And it's so aligned with, with what I tell my clients, especially when I'm working with uh, our counterparts as far as the baby boomers are who are transitioning towards retirement. I'm big on looking at the lifestyle that you want to have and let's develop, let's put some kind of investment that offers guaranteed income just to provide that base necessity to where you know I can afford this kind of lifestyle that I can live. And yeah. then then have an investment portfolio that's invested more aggressively for the things above and beyond that. But it makes sense to have a guaranteed set to keep things on track. And that, I, like I said, I share that with my retirement, but it makes sense just like you as a young person to have our, our basic necessities met with some sort of income. Yeah, yeah. Guaranteed. Don't, don't be like, all right, I got my first bonus. That means I'm going to go get a BMW. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no. yeah. <laughs> keep, keep, driving, keep driving the accord it's just yeah, keep, nice. hey, oh. keep driving better on gas <laughs> but it's true and i really do think that the millennial generation it's and and the generation right after too i mean they're 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 the ones i really feel bad for because at least when i was 21 i didn't have instagram I mean, yeah. I don't know what I would have done if I had Instagram back then. Now it's like, well, look at that car and look at this house and look at that outfit. And just you need X and Y and Z and then some. Um, yeah. So it's we, just really hard to tune that out. As humans in general, we have a sense of a need to, to kind of impress. And yeah. we, I, at least keep up and show, hey, you know, we're doing okay. Even if we're not, we like to put off the fact that, we're doing good and, and then with Instagram where we can see your life you know I'm not on social media even though you're encouraging me to get on, on soon enough but um you it's so we want to keep up with the Joneses you want to show people hey I'm doing okay too I have a nice car too even if you can't afford that so these are a whole like you said these young kids that are coming up they're called the uh, Gen Z Generation Z yeah. they're dealing with things that we never had to deal with and just the pressures that come with their life is, it's, it's something impactful. So much pressure, so much pressure. But I really do think security and it's such an insecure world is something, if you can create it for yourself, it's, it's huge. Just that feeling of, you know, the bank isn't going to take my car tomorrow because that car belongs to me, right? 
knowing that the creditor isn't going to be that, you know, blocked caller that's calling you. Yeah. Um, knowing that you can wake up tomorrow and lose your job and nothing's going to happen to you for that, a amount that, of months. I stress my clients, like a lot, everyone says, you know, they come to financial advisors and start investing. That's kind of the sexy part about what we do. But I tell my clients, like, build that emergency reserve. That's so important because, they, like you said, that way if you lose a job, no one's going to know you don't have a job for the next three months because you have enough income set aside to keep your lifestyle on track. And that, that security that that gives you, you're not going to jump at the first job bar for you get because you've taken time to build that emergency reserve and things are still on your terms, even if you're unemployed or not. So exactly. that, that, that's a huge thing. It will come close to the I got one more question for you. Okay. Like, as, a, um, as an entrepreneur, it's hard to, to define success. But um, in a few words today, how would you describe what, what does financial success look like to you? And I wouldn't say a dollar amount. I think of it as more of a quality of life. So what does financial success look like to Daria today? Exactly what I just defined. Waking up in the morning, knowing that I do not carry revolving debt. Uh, waking up in the morning and knowing that my child's current life and future educational life is secure. Um, and I, I think that that's financial success. No, knowing that if I lost all my limbs tomorrow, we would be okay. Um, so... I, I think that that's huge. Just that safety net, having it in place, providing for your family. And that doesn't mean not splurging, but to me, that's what financial success is, is, yeah. is a lifestyle that doesn't depend on credit given from you know someone else. Because as long as you carry a loan on anything, none of it belongs to you. Mm -hmm. It belongs to whoever the creditor is. That's whose name goes on the note. <laughs> <laughs> that was an awesome answer, and it really puts things in perspective, especially someone. Most, most people consider you successful, given your lifestyle, but just to hear that the things that matter most to you is just the fact that no one thinks going to be okay. That, that, that's a great way to share that, and it puts, it, put things, it puts things in perspective for our listeners. Um, I want to thank you for being a guest on the show you did an awesome job Thank anybody you. looking to buy a home in the Sacramento area i will include daria's contact information in the show night show notes and i correct me if i'm wrong but buying a home begins with education so i know you're open to speaking and advising people who are might be a year or two years out from the purchase but at least they can yes. help them in position thank you that's a big wait i just one more thing i know you're short in time but Stop talking to your friends. Like those of you that are listening, do not ask for financial advice from anyone unless they are licensed uh, to give it to you. Do not ask your neighbor. Do not get financial investing advice from your, you know, uh, office cubicle, whoever you share your cubicle wall with. Like, no. Stop, stop talking to other people about your business and do not be afraid. People like Peyton, like myself, like 
we are, this is what we do. And we cannot wait to share it with you. I mean, like, I know Peyton is like lives, breathes, and loves when a millennial approaches him. This is like what he lives for, right? So to educate, to share, to guide, and don't, don't, no, you're not going to get solid, any kind of financial advice uh, at a barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) So call an expert, call a professional. Yeah, call a professional, but uh, God bless. God bless. Bye. Congratulations, guys. You've officially made it to the disclosure portion of the show. I'm an investment advisor representative of securities offered through Bertha Fisher & Company, Financial Services, Inc. BFCFS member FINRA-SIPC. Holmes Financial is independent of BFCFS. Thanks and have a blessed week.